Well, hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. I am here for another exciting, glamorous episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. That's right. We're talking Hollywood, darling. The lights, the stars. Speaking of stars, before I get any further, we have to introduce my fantastic co-star for this glamorous podcast. It's the one, the only, it's Michael Barati. Well, hello, hello, Peaches. Thank you for sharing the marquee. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. It's our first episode of 2023, and I cannot imagine a better movie to kick off the year because this is truly one of those pop culture behemoths. It's a movie that changed, really, in many ways, everything. And it's a movie that, while it was immediately a successful film, garnering many, many award nominations and instantly becoming woven into the zeitgeist, uh, we can see its impact on cult cinema as well, which is one of the reasons we picked it. We've talked about this in other podcasts where the episode features films that might not be as obvious to the cult movie aficionado because we love cult movies. We are horror fans through and through. We are horror people. We are also unapologetically queer. And there is a certain kind of cult movie fandom that is unique to the queer community. Of course, we have tons of heterosexual listeners to our podcast who really do get it. And as you know, I include them in the queer definition. Obviously, things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show are queer in their cult. But there's this other sort of genre of movies, often uh, starring Hollywood female leads that are iconically, glamorously legendary, you know, and we're talking the Joan Crawfords, the Elizabeth Taylors, Betty Davis, Rita Hayworth, Mae West, Judy Garland, right? Liza Minnelli. I mean, we know that as queer people, there's a deeper obsession with some of this stuff. And this movie is certainly one of the most important. The cult connection goes back to the idea of otherness because all of those women, especially through the roles that we obsess about them the most over, usually portray the other in some way. Whether it's Betty Davis in Baby Jane or Judy Garland in A Star is Born, literally being Dorothy in Oz, the literal other in a, in a different land. There's something that we as queer audience members can connect to, but as cult audiences connect to, because cult inherently speaks to the subversive. It speaks to the other. And so it makes sense to me that though not horror, these movies are part of our DNA. It's because we look at these things that are outside of the mainstream and we obsess over them because we recognize that it is fabulous to be different, if that makes sense. Yeah. And of the films that I would say are these big Hollywood vehicles that we've covered on Midnight Mass, you can see that through line. You know, Rosalind Russell as Auntie Mame is the other. I mean, that's what the whole character essentially is celebrating. Um, right. And of course, we're going to identify that. I mean, God, Liza Minnelli and Cabaret. I mean, there is this through line. Um, and so when we get to uh, Gloria Swanson playing Norman Desmond, um, and get that parallel going of someone who is not just playing a character, but could be that character to some degree, you know, because they share the extraordinary circumstances uh, in real life. That's iconic, especially right. because, you know, she hit a home run, let's face it. 
Absolutely. And since you mentioned her by name and by character, without further ado, of course, <laughs> we are speaking of 1950s Sunset Boulevard, directed by the legendary Billy Wilder, starring Gloria Swanson, William Holden, Nancy Olson, featuring Dragnet's Jack Webb, about the pitfalls of stardom and the desperation of screenwriting. I mean, honestly, it's relatable. <laughs> <laughs> and what way is it relatable to, to us? A movie about a desperate screenwriter and an aging starlet <laughs> with delusions of grandeur. I don't actually, you're a, right. That's a beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous aging starlet. Because, you know, in my day, we had faces. Anyway. Well, I, thank I you, Peaches, for calling me a beautiful starlet. I really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, it's just uh, one of those movies where... Well, we, as you know, we have two powerhouse interviews lined up. I just want to say welcome back to the new year. I'm excited to be back with the audience. We have been posting over on our Patreon. Uh, I just uh, shared a bit of um, an update on some some new movies that I, I saw uh, that I wanted to recommend, Violent Night being one of them. And at some point, you and I should talk about that because you are, of course, the Christmas movie expert. Um, <laughs> but I, I really, really enjoyed it. And then um, Matilda the Musical, which, uh, you know, if you're a listener of the podcast, you know that we've covered Matilda, starring our friend Mara Wilson, who who is a, a guest on the podcast. And I kind of didn't really know what to expect. I, I went in with mediocre expectations and I loved it. So if you want to kind of keep up with what we're seeing in real time, the Patreon is where we talk about all those movies that are coming out. I know that you and I are going to see Megan. I mean, we have to. Absolutely. So if you want to you, you know what we think of Megan, uh, check that out. But of course, on this show, we're talking about a movie from 1950, you know, and uh, we lined up for the first episode of 2023. I think two of the best guests we could ever have possibly asked for to be on this show about Sunset Boulevard. As we set up our first guest, what's interesting about the history and trajectory of Sunset Boulevard is almost immediately people understood its power, but perhaps none more so than Gloria Swanson herself. After the film really connected with audiences, she saw an avenue where she could take this character and expand upon her and maybe give her the happier ending that the movie didn't allow Norma Desmond and started working on her own idea for a Broadway stage musical adaptation of Sunset Boulevard, presupposing the one that Angela Lloyd Webber would do many, many years later. Now, our first guest, discovering this hidden history, set out to make a documentary all about Gloria Swanson's journey and attempts of bringing this musical to the stage. You know him as the Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker behind such films as I Am Divine and Tab Hunter Confidential. It's Jeffrey Schwartz, and he's here to talk to us right now. Not just a fan of today's movie, our next guest helped bring a piece of its hidden history to light with his recent award-winning documentary, Boulevard, A Hollywood Story, which explored the entanglement between Gloria Swanson and two songwriters in their journey to take the story of Norma Desmond to the stage. Beyond Swanson, this incredible filmmaker is known the world round for his extensive body of documentary work that includes I Am Divine, Tab Hunter Confidential, The Fabulous Alan Carr, Vito, 
Wrangler, Anatomy of an Icon, and Spine Tingler, The William Castle Story. He is an Emmy Award winner whose many, many merits I could talk about for hours. Please welcome producer, writer, director, and much, much more, Jeffrey Schwartz. Yay! I'm so happy to be here. I'm a fan. I listen every week. I love you both, and I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, well, we're thrilled you. to have you. Interesting about you is you're one of those guests, and we have them, but not a ton of them, but those special guests where it's like, we can have Jeffrey on for this episode, for that episode. Like, we're definitely kindred spirits. We share the same obsessions. Of course, um, you work with Michael quite frequently. You and Michael have worked on a number of collaborations together. He's worked on your projects. And I've had the fortune of being in um, at least one of your films, maybe more than one in the near future. I feel like it's all in the family with this episode. The reason, obviously, we chose you for Sunset Boulevard is because of your latest film to... uh, I guess, hit the streaming networks now. Why don't you tell us about Boulevard? This movie I've been working on for the last few years, uh, and it just came out, so you can you can see it now, finally, which feels great to have this thing out in the world. It's called Boulevard, A Hollywood Story. And since this episode is about Sunset Boulevard, what's interesting about this film is that it is sort of a backstory about Gloria Swanson, who starred in Sunset Boulevard, who I'm sure you'll be talking about on this episode, You know, I don't think a lot of people know much about her backstory. You know, you see Sunset Boulevard and that character of Norma Desmond is so indelible. She's so incredible. It's almost like there's not an actor there. And it's even more interesting is because the the actress who played Norma Desmond had this incredible career as a silent movie actress um, decades before. And unlike the character in the movie, she was not a washed up, forgotten, delusional person. She was very much a modern woman and she was still in the public eye. So there, there's such a difference between the, the character and the reality. But she was so identified with the role that surprisingly, after Sunset Boulevard came out, she was nominated for an Oscar, the famous 1950 Oscars, where, you know, this was like the Battle of the Titans here. You had, you know, Betty Davis for All About Eve and Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard and some other obviously incredible actresses. And Gloria lost. And it was sort of considered that it was a lock for her because so much of the publicity around Sunset Boulevard was this was a big comeback for her. And so she lost the Oscar, but she was very gracious about it. There's even photos of her at the moment where she lost, you know, like on The Simpsons, the the moment when uh, Ralph's heart breaks. You know, you'd see that moment (laughs) with Gloria on film. Um, But she, she never really was able to capitalize on that comeback. She had a couple of other roles. But very, very minor movies and nothing at the level of Sunset Boulevard, certainly no other Billy Wilder movies. And that was one that's so interesting. So she apparently, I, I was reading a book called Close Up on Sunset Boulevard by Sam Stacks, which is a great book. And it goes through the entire making of the film and every little detail you ever wanted to know. And there's one chapter in that book about this musical that Gloria Swanson herself attempted to make not that long after the release of Sunset Boulevard. And I found this so interesting, like, well, you know, in the 50s, it was pretty uncommon for movies to be made into musicals. Now, every other movie is a musical, as you know. But in the 50s, especially with a a storyline like this, which is so dark and grim, you know, you don't really expect people to open their mouths and start singing. But Gloria had it in her mind. She was a singer. She uh, originally, before she became a a movie star, she wanted to be an opera singer. So she had a, a trained voice. It was kind of an old fashioned voice, though. It wasn't really a contemporary sounding voice in the 50s. But she she wanted to make a musical. That was in her head. And um, through a strange twist of fate, she encountered these two young men, uh, Dixon Hughes and Richard Stapley were their names. 
they were a gay couple in their 20s. They were not presenting themselves to the world as a gay couple. They were presenting themselves to the world as songwriting partners, which you had to do back in the day when you really couldn't be open about your relationships. Um, they found their way to Gloria Swanson to pitch an idea for sort of a musical review that she they wanted her to be the star of. And she was not interested in doing that, but she said to them, you know, the only reason I would go back to Broadway is if I could do a musical version of Sunset Boulevard. And they were just completely floored at that moment because they were these two young, struggling songwriters. And they looked at her like, oh, my God, this is our ticket to the big time. And so the three of them embarked on this adventure to make this musical. And that's what the movie's about. Amazing. What I find really interesting about this story is Gloria Swanson right away understood both the Hollywood appeal of Sunset Boulevard, but also the cult appeal, the idea of taking it into this other space. Often on the show, Peaches and I talk about movies that were, for lack of a better term, failures upon release, but that was not the case with Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is one of the rare movies that was both a Hollywood hit and a cult film all at once. And I think it may have to do maybe with some of the, the subversive elements. But we, we ran into this a little bit when we talked about anti-mame as well. And I just sort of wanted your take on this. Do you suspect it has to do with her specifically? Is that what pushes this into cult? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we love cult movies. And part of the reason we love them is because of the characters. And these characters are just indelible and bigger than life. Frank and Ferber, you know, Don Davenport, Norma Desmond. And you just say the name and you just picture her. Like, you know exactly who she is. And she steals the movie. She walks away with the movie. She's not in every scene of the movie. She's not even the lead character of the movie. William Holden is the, the point of view through the movie. Um, but it's it's Norma Desmond. And she created that character so much of it is what she brought to the role. You know, when they originally were writing the script and developing it, Billy Wilder and his writing partner, you know, it was not intended for Gloria Swanson. It wasn't even intended to be, the character was not even intended to be a silent film actress. It was supposed to be like a washed up burlesque star. And they were talking to Mae West. And Mae West was interested in doing it, but she sort of turned it down because she did not imagine she would ever throw herself at a man. <laughs> like the men would throw <laughs> themselves at her. So she turned it down. But can you imagine it would be a completely different movie? I would love to see uh, that version of Sunset Boulevard, but it's not, it wouldn't be what we know today, Sunset Boulevard. So when, when they started talking to Gloria, she hadn't acted in a long time. And Billy uh, Wilder and Gloria just fell in love with each other instantly. And she started working with him to develop the character further. They brought things from her own life into the movie. Obviously, her former career as a silent film actress known all around the world and beloved all around the world and the change in movies that happened when sound came in when so many of those stars were just thrown to the wayside because either they couldn't talk you know they'd open their mouths and the voice that you imagined was not the voice that they had that famously that happened to so many actors or they just you know times change and they just were in sync with their times for a certain amount of time and then times changed and she wasn't perceived as sort of a modern star although she was um, so to answer your question, yeah, it's all about Norma Desmond and that indelible stamp that Gloria Swanson put on the movie. There are those roles where you almost feel like they're synonymous, right? Like we've seen Frankenfurter played by many people now over the years. And, you know, Laverne Cox has played Frankenfurter. You know, a lot of people on stage, of course, have played Frankenfurter. Of course, all the shadow casts. But really, we all know Frankenfurter will always be Tim Curry. It's sort of like when they tried to do um, Nightmare on Elm Street with someone other than Robert England. You know, it's like, no, this is Robert's role. 
it is synonymous with Robert. Now, I agree with you. Seeing Mae West do a version of Sunset Boulevard, I'm sure would be really entertaining. And, uh, you know, I was doing some reading about this just, just to get ready for our talk. And I didn't realize it wasn't just Mae West. It was the, the duo was going to be Mae West with Marlon Brando, which is, <laughs> wow, you know, um, really different movie. And there was talk of Montgomery Clift appearing in the film in, in the William Holden role. But he had a very interesting personal life and he was romantically involved with a young, an older woman in his own life. So I think the two of them actually decided that this wasn't going to be right for him because it was just too close to his reality. My deep research was Wikipedia, right? So, I mean, I did, <laughs> I will say that, you know, um, it was interesting because I, obviously, you know, and Michael, because you've done research on it as well. I didn't know as much. I mean, I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan of the soundtrack to this film. It's a, it's a soundtrack that I, I return to over and over again. And one, I had forgotten until you brought it up that it's not actually a film where she is the notable star, right? Like he is the star. He's the one we go on the journey with. You're right. But you forget that even the way, but they knew what they were doing. Like if you look at the poster, the one sheet for the movie, I mean, she's, she's owning that one sheet in, in the best way possible, but l- looking up the Wikipedia page. Okay. So it says that Wilder had approached Greta Garbo. So that's a different movie. Polinegri. Clara Bow, which makes sense, right? Um, and even Norma Shearer, Mary Pickford. Th- there was a number of people they went to before uh, getting to Gloria. But thank God it ended up being Gloria, you know. It's absolutely. And it had to be Gloria Swanson because all, a lot of those actresses that you mentioned, they were iconic in their time. But there's a fear there because, you know, when this, the, the idea of a movie star being invented in the early part of the 1900s, right? Most of them were younger people, beautiful young people. You want to see pretty beautiful people on the big screen that take your breath away. But then time goes on, time marches on, they start getting older. Mm-hmm. And that is the mortal sin in Hollywood is to get old. And you don't want your movie stars to, to get old. And Gloria knew that so much of the character's trauma was the idea that she was getting old. Now old, we're talking about 50, which is ridiculous because I don't know about you, but I'm over, I'm older than Norma Desmond. And, um, you know, that was brave of her to do that, to present herself in this vulnerable way where she was obsessed with getting older, the character, right? And you see the desperate attempts in the movie of her to maintain her youth when she thinks she's going to have this big comeback and she has this army of beauticians to come in and the the physical pain that she put herself through to try to maintain this this youth. Now, would those other actresses been as brave to show themselves in that way? I don't think so. So I think it's a credit to, to Gloria as an actress who understood this, this character probably more, more than most people, that she was willing to put herself out there and show herself in that way. I like what you say about witnessing her bravery in this movie and, and taking that into account while watching her performance. And I wonder, uh, you know, usually... At the end of the interview, I ask who we're talking to about their changing relationship with the film. But because you went on the journey of making a documentary about Gloria Swanson and the life that she had after Sunset Boulevard and attempting to continue the story, I'm wondering, as you were making the documentary, if there were things about the movie that changed to you or you learned, obviously you learned things because you made a whole movie about it. But was there a significant place where you started with Sunset Boulevard as a piece of art post making the documentary where you are now? That's such an interesting question. You know, I didn't when I was a kid, I, I didn't know the movie. First, first uh, image I had of Sunset Boulevard was was Carol Burnett. When Carol Burnett used to do 
the takeoffs of Sunset Boulevard on her show with Harvey Korman as Mac, right? And it was just ridiculous. But I didn't know it was a parody of a movie. I saw all the skits and it was hilarious, but I didn't really know what the context was. And then later I realized, oh, that's Sunset Boulevard. And oh, that's Gloria Swanson. Oh, that's Gloria Swanson from Airport 75. Oh, that's Gloria Swanson from the talk shows I used to see as a kid. She was on all these talk shows and game shows. You know, she was very much in the public eye. This is, she died in the early 80s. So I, I was a little kid, you know, and my relationship with the movie sort of started to unfold where I fell in love with the movie, obviously. And I would say um, my taste in movies came out before I did. So I was attracted <laughs> to, you know, I hate to call them hag movies, but that's kind of what they're called. You know, these movies starring older actresses who just chew up the scenery and own the movie and you just can't take your eyes off them and you love them so much. But, you know, making the documentary, I started to focus more and more on the themes of the movie and the themes of how just society in general starts to ignore you, discard you, look at you like you're invisible as you get older, right? And in the documentary, that theme is very much present. You know, Gloria Swanson herself, as she was getting older, she wanted to maintain that relationship with the public. And she wanted to, she didn't want to be forgotten. She wanted to be you know, loved and adored, and the public did love and adore her. Now, these two gentlemen that were with her um, in this experience, you know, the film follows them as they get older. And, you know, when they met Gloria, they were in their 20s, they were young, very vibrant guys. Um, and then through uh, various uh, machinations, this musical doesn't work out. And we can talk about that perhaps later. But they went on, their lives went on. They, they were not a couple anymore after this experience. This basically, Gloria basically broke them up, right? And so, <laughs> and, and she sort of walked away with the wreckage, you know, behind her. But Dixon and Richard went on separately. Now, Richard, if you look him up online, you'll see Richard Stapley was a very, very dashing, handsome actor. He was a, a British actor. He started on stage and he came to, to New York. He did Broadway. He came to Hollywood. He got an MGM contract. He did a few movies. They were trying to sell him as the, the British Clark Gable. Um, and he did some stuff. He's in uh, Three Musketeers and Little Women, and he's in bit parts. So if you've seen some classic movies, you might have actually seen this guy. But it never really took off for him. And he, of course, was a gay man, deeply, deeply, deeply closeted. He'd been married a couple times. Like so many uh, actors of that era, had to keep that part of himself very, very deeply hidden and closeted. But he never gave up on that dream of being a star. And once you've had a little taste of it, like Gloria did and like Richard did, um, he had that little taste of the glamorous life and being a star and being up on the big screen and he never let it go. So he was always sort of chasing that dream. And as he got older, as someone says in the film, you know, he was no spring chicken anymore, <laughs> but he didn't let that stop him. And so there's a little bit of Norma Desmond in Richard. And, um, you know, for myself, I'm uh, getting older too. And I want to remain vital in the world. And you look around and see how older people become invisible in our society. So for me, that's what the most touching thing about the film is maintaining the, the storyline in the film about Richard and Dixon and what happened to them at the, as they age and how one of them sort of embraced it, Dixon, and the other one sort of raged at it and was never able to sort of accept what was happening. Of course, you know, as a listener of the podcast, that we often talk about how everything we love is queer. And even for non-queer people, but that, that, that there's a queerness to this stuff. And, you know, I love what you said about like that your taste in movies came out before you did. I feel like that about music. It was like, I didn't realize till later when I was like, I think I listened to the Pet Shop Boys and Erasure and Madonna. And, you know, I had no idea, you know, my kid movies were definitely horror based, which I didn't see as queer until later in life. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's queer, too. I did have an instructor at school when I was a film student who was an older gay man. He wasn't a film professor. He was a uh, 
sociology kind of professor and he was out and he was gay. He was, he was Dr. Tony Diagelli. And at Penn State, I remember him saying to me, you don't know the classics. Like here you are, you're an out gay guy. And the only thing you know about Judy Garland is The Wizard of Oz. Here's the list of movies you need to watch. And he showed me All About Eve, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Sunset Boulevard, uh, The Women, Auntie Mame, and on and on and on. And it was life-changing. You know, like years before that, I had discovered John Waters. I talk about how that was life-changing. But also having this older gay man explain the classics to me. Totally life-changing. And of course, a lot of them were considered exploitation. But I wonder if the connection is really even more obvious, right? Like we as gay men and queer people, especially gay men, I think more more so than women. I feel like women in our community are allowed to get old and aren't necessarily shunned the same way that we are. Maybe that's not true. I should probably talk to a lesbian to find out how they feel about it. But we know that with gay men, that it's led to suicide, you know, that it's led to a lot of drug addiction, that, 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 that this is a real issue in our community. So you look at a movie like Sunset Boulevard, I mean, you really go, oh, I get it, honey. <laughs> you know, we can both laugh at it and also see ourselves in it. Ultimately, Sunset Boulevard, in many ways, has a comedic way of dealing with it. They walk that comedic line. So do you feel like we as, I guess, queer people, you know, identify specifically with Sunset Boulevard because of that struggle with aging? Absolutely. I might not have identified that when I was falling in love with all these movies, but most of the movies that you just mentioned are about all these older women who are raging against getting older, their appearance is changing, and the things that sort of gave them currency in the world, they can't count on that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that happens in Sunset Boulevard, clearly. And I always sort of looked at it as a monster movie. You know, I grew up as a monster kid like you both did. And yeah. I was attracted to, I think she is a Dracula figure. You know, she lives in that spooky old house on yeah. the hill. And so like Dracula, the, the handsome young man comes in and sort of is ensnared in the spider web. And the way she's photographed, I mean, she she looks like a spider. You know, she, she literally is dressed like uh, a 1920s vixen, but she is... Uh, past the age where that be would be appropriate. And now we're in the 50s and the world has totally passed her by, but she hasn't accepted that. And so there's sometimes the movie looks at her. I don't think we're meant to ever laugh at her. I think we're meant to look at her as a tragic figure. But mm-hmm. she is, like if you look at the movie, she is a very vital person. You know, she wants to be loved. She wants to have a love affair. She is clearly living in her own world, but she's a sexy, vital person. And she likes to get down too. I mean, she like yeah. <laughs> she yeah. she wants to have sex with him. And she does, and she gets what she wants in a yeah. in a way for a little while, briefly. But you know, she has to slit her wrists to do it, but she gets what she wants. Well, isn't it interesting? We're talking about the much loathed term exploitation, and uh, even though times have changed, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We have movies like X and spoiler alert, Barbarian, that now treat the aging female body as monster. And it's this kind of continued operative misogyny that we haven't got past. It's like the older woman is the monster. And, you know, we look at Sunset Boulevard through Baby Jane, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, all the way to the movies I just referenced. And they're treated as monster by mainstream, but we as queer folks connect to them because I think if you look at Sunset Boulevard specifically or Baby Jane, they both end sort of with delirium, like the idea that they, the movie's ending, but they're still stuck in this place. 
But I think there's a part of us that recognizes it's not necessarily these women that are delirious. It's the world that's delirious for pushing them into this corner. Is that too crazy to say? Absolutely right. I mean, I think, well, Baby Jane, for example, I mean, she walks out on the street looking like that and nobody gives her any sympathy. They all think she's just like a total freak, you know, and and there's underneath all of that, there is something there. There is some caring there that used to be there, but it's calcified, you know. But with Norma Desmond, I think she's different than those other ones because she is like when she goes out into the world to visit Paramount to get Cecil B. DeMille to make her movie, everyone loves her. You know, she's she's yeah. not treated like an outsider or some sort of a freak. She's treated like a beloved person that they haven't seen, but she's just out of her element. And so I think there could be a happy ending for Norma Desmond, but there mm-hmm. clearly isn't. And it's a tragic movie, so that would never be a happy ending for Norma Desmond. So I don't know, but would you want to see a happy ending for Norma Desmond? Gloria Swanson wanted a happy ending for Norma Desmond. And that's why she did this musical, because she had a score to settle. You know, she had a lot of ideas that she wanted to put in Sunset Boulevard that Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, the screenwriters, they did not agree with. She was always trying to make Gloria more sympathetic. She didn't want uh, Norma Desmond to be rich. Right. She didn't want Norma Desmond to just not have any uh, concern about where the money's going to be coming from. Right. Because in the movie, she's got her oil wells pumping, pumping, pumping. Right. Yeah. But in the musical, since she's producing the musical, she's going to be the lead character and she's going to be more sympathetic. So in the musical, she's selling her jewelry to mm. pay for all the trinkets and things that she's going to buy Joe Gillis. Right. So it's very, very different. He doesn't kill Joe at the end in the musical. She does have a happy ending in the musical. She has a lot of songs, love songs in the, in the musical. So it's interesting to, to see the musical as a way that you can see what Gloria's personal thoughts were about the character. And she cared for her and she wanted her to have a, a happy ending. I would for sure want to see that. <laughs> I mean, I, I not not in terms of the, the Wilder film, but in terms of seeing her present the character the way she wanted to present the character in a musical? Absolutely. Oh my God. Yes, yes, yes. And that's why I think your documentary is so great because I think so many of us, myself included, didn't know anything about this story. I had no clue. And so, you know, it's it's a great thing to know. And I'm sure, you know, they'd appreciate knowing that now the world knows of the, you know, the work that they had put into that project, even if it never got to see the light of day because as as creators we all know for as many things you see us put out into the world there are so many more that we have toiled over we have stressed out over we have put a lot of work in to that never will see the light of day that no one really knows about and that can be quite painful and uh you know a, a hard process you know and a lot of reasons why people you know leave the business you know because it's it leads to a lot of feelings of defeat Anyway, I I was going to say about Michael's comment about I hadn't even thought about, you know, Barbarian or X in that way. And now I'm sitting here, my mind is racing like, oh, my God, he's right. In some ways, I actually think that those films are meaner than what, you know, the sort of the genre of exploitation, you know, kind of, you know, when I watch something like Lady in a Cage or, you know, Sunset Boulevard, I don't I don't quite find them as mean, you know. And Baby Jane, I think because Betty Davis is so in on it and so loving being a monster, you know, that she's so the one that created that monstrous vision, I find Baby Jane to be one of the best movies ever made, you know? And like, I think it's a great movie for the two of them. But yeah, X is funny because it is presented that way. And I, as a gay man, was rooting for Pearl. Like, I actually knew what they were doing with using all the prosthetics for... And for those of you who don't know, 
she's very, very old and they do a lot of close-ups of her old wrinkly skin and she's sexual, she's horny. And that's kind of the thing, right? Aside from the killing, you know, uh, she's a horny old lady. And I found myself, because she was horny, you know, and an old lady, I was like, oh yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, like I, I, I had empathy for her, you know, like I was like, get the dick and kill that bitch, you know? I mean, as horrible as it sounds, um, but you're right. I don't think that's the way most teenage audiences are watching that movie, right? No. They're going, ew, <laughs> ew, you know. Um, yeah, I yeah. had the same reaction to that as you did, Michael X. You know, I, I thought it was a brilliantly made movie, but the yeah. attitude toward Pearl and the horror of, oh my God, that old lady and the, the, the sort of close-up sets of her wrinkles, and that's the yeah. most horrible thing. But then you think of it, the audience for that movie is probably going to be a lot of younger people, who that would be the most horrible thing. Or that other movie, Old, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Where uh, like, yeah. The, 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 the worst nightmare that you could possibly imagine is, is is getting old. And that's only something that can come out of the mind of somebody in their 20s. You know? It's just interesting because if they had come out sort of independently, it might not have hit me. But you had sort of the run of old and X and Barbarian yeah. and all of these movies that seem to be like our, our monsters are not Jason or Freddy or Dracula or Frankenstein right now. It's that failing physical body, you know, which yeah. is is fascinating, and especially as it relates to women, which feels very pointed. I'm not saying I dislike these movies. I'm just saying it's a conversation to have. And sexuality. Yeah. And, you know, when, when when Liza came out on the Oscars, I mean, I was so touched to see her coming out on the Oscars. But Or when Kirk Douglas came out, you know, he was clearly at a very advanced age. But these are venerated people that we've spent our whole lives looking up to and loving. And I think it's a very, I don't want to say brave, because it shouldn't be brave, but just... Liza just willing to say, yep, this is who I am and this is where I'm at in my life and I'm still here. And there's something really powerful and wonderful about that. And I think we're at an age now where we can celebrate older people in the media. Like we've got Joan Collins is out in the world and still acting. And we've got Jane Fonda. Look at Jane Fonda. Just check out Madonna's TikTok. But here's the thing. And this is the perfect Sunset Boulevard conversation, quite frankly. The more that the world is railing against her for being silly and ridiculous on TikTok, the more I'm finding myself like, go, Madonna. The weirder she gets, that picture of her with her butt coming out from underneath the bed. I'm like, at first I was kind of like the rest of people going like, what the fuck is she doing? Like, what is going on? As it goes on and on, it's just Madonna being Madonna and giving a huge middle finger to all the people that don't think she's the right age to be looking the way she does or acting the way she does. And I am loving it. And now I'm just like, get weirder, you know? Well, and let's face it. It's proof positive that it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Jeffrey references Liza coming out at the Oscars. And there were people who were kind of upset because she looked old. And she is because that's a fact of life. But then remember when Kim Novak was on the Oscars and she had work done, they were ridiculing her for having work done. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, just live your damn life. I remember how much they went after Joan Rivers. And, And we all know, being in the industry that we're in, If Joan Rivers had looked her age, she would never have been booked for the red carpet interviews. So she could look bizarre as long as she didn't look old. But we know that if she had looked her natural age, she would not have had the career she did. And so you're you're right. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So in the case of Madonna, the more that it's upsetting people, the more I'm enjoying it, you know. I'm glad you brought her up because I was thinking about her in relation to Norma Desmond. Joan Rivers even came out and said when people would ask her about the plastic surgery, she would say, nobody wants to see an old face on TV. And is she wrong? 
You know, at least the people who are making decisions about who gets to be on TV. And if you're a woman of a certain age and you are on TV, how many hours do you have to spend in a makeup chair before you dare to like be, you know, put yourself out there and and, uh, let the world see you? You know, Joan uh, Crawford said, you know, she would never walk out onto the street unless she would look like the way the world expected her to look. As they're getting older, it's so unforgiving, you know, and fans can also be unforgiving. What you said about Liza and so many people were saying, oh, she shouldn't have gone out there or they shouldn't have let her or, you know, if we don't see that infirmity that that's somehow protecting her. And I don't see it that way. I think it's very um, loving to sort of see her and say, we've loved you all these years and we still love you. And um, we're rooting for you no matter no matter what shape you're in. We still love you. For, you know, listeners who wonder if we've gotten far afield, I'm wondering if actually this all is in context, the macro lesson of Sunset Boulevard. This all leads back to why we love this movie. It is definitely related to her fabulousness in many ways and her her sort of fierceness, you know, as someone who's saying, I did it my way, um, as cheesy as that sounds. And, you know, connecting the dots between Norma Desmond and Madonna today, that is not a reach. You know, Madonna may be using TikTok or, you know, whatever, but the guy that she was dating recently is like 40 years younger than her. You know, I'm kind of loving it. I wish Madonna would just be less insecure. You know, like that's the one thing where I'm like, bitch, you have done everything. Just enjoy, sit back and relax. Like, you know, you still get the sense that she's a little insecure. But as far as Sunset Boulevard goes, I do think it's all connected. One thing I wanted to ask Jeffrey about Um, because it relates to the revelation about this musical creation. Where did the Andrew Lloyd Webber project come in? And was there overlap? And was there conflict? And how did the the, the musical that we've come to now know as Sunset Boulevard, did it relate to all, to to theirs? We've all been in a situation where there's something we part our heart and soul into either never gets made for some reason or another, or someone else comes along and does the thing that you wanted to do and maybe doesn't do it as well, but you'll never say that because you want to be gracious, you know? But what happened with Sunset Boulevard, the three of them did pour their heart and soul into this. And Gloria, in her way of going about the world, just assumed everything was going to work out because she's Gloria Swanson, of course. And Mm -hmm. people are going to roll the red carpet out for her. She had called Paramount and got on the phone with somebody from the old days and said, we want to do this musical. Will you give us the rights? And somebody on the phone said, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. Just, you know, show us the, the songs when you're done. So by the time they were actually done, and they did write the entire score, and I was mm. able to find all of the tracks in Gloria's archive, which is another story about finding all this material. Um, she was ready to actually pull the trigger on this and tr- and get those rights. And by the time she was ready to get those rights, somebody else was there in, in the legal department and said, sorry, you can't have them because we want to sell this movie to TV. So TV is actually the villain in this case. And she didn't get the rights. And so it was dead. The whole project was just dead. And for her, she could sort of go on and do other things. But for Richard and Dixon, this was going to be their big shot. And they never got to take this shot. And they never really gave up on that dream. Gloria, you know, she went on to do other things, but she had those tapes. And she would play them at cocktail parties for her friends. And she never really gave up on the idea of wanting to do it. But it was never really going to happen. And so uh, Dixon Hughes, who was sort of the, the piano uh, musician of the of the duo, he sort of assumed it was never going to happen. And he gave up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one day, Andrew Lloyd Webber announces he's going to be doing Sunset Boulevard as a musical. And Dixon is completely, oh, well, deflated because this was their dream. And somebody with the power of an Andrew Lloyd Webber could actually make that happen. Um, you know, but then he got the idea. This was in the early 90s when the Sunset Boulevard musical debuted and it was going to be playing in Los Angeles um, with Glenn Close. And he got the idea, why don't I do a musical? 
musical review starring me, Dixon Hughes, telling the story of how Dixon, Richard, and Gloria came together to write this musical and will use the songs from the musical. So he actually did do that. Um, he did a little review at the Hollywood Roosevelt up on Hollywood Cross in the Chinese Theater, a three-person uh, play where he played himself. And this by this point, he was in his 60s. He was playing himself in his 20s and dating this young, hunky guy. So it was a little odd. <laughs> you know, actually, and I see, there's video of it that's in the documentary. But, you know, and then Sunset Boulevard, the Angela Rever version was playing right down the street. So he did have a little bit of a revenge there, but it was heartbreaking for him. And he never could really bring himself to even see the Lloyd Webber. I don't know if Lloyd Webber knew about their version. Um, I think he probably did because it was talked about among Broadway fanatics that there was this attempt to do it. And there were some bootlegs recordings that may have got out. I doubt that he heard them or knew about it. And his approach to the material is so different from what they were trying to do. It's another example of show business being a cruel mistress sometimes. Yes. Yeah. As we're wrapping up, the story that you tell about the revenge, you know, playing the show as he's in his 60s, and all three of these figures in, in different ways are on the outside looking in. And I think that's a great segue into some of the other documentary work that you've done. Because if you look at the subjects of your documentaries, Vito Russo, Divine, Tab Hunter, these are all folks who in their own way were on the outside looking in, even if they appeared to the world at large to be insiders. So I'm wondering when you set out to document someone's story, what are the ingredients for a Jeffrey Schwartz documentary? What do you look for? A great character, primarily. Um, somebody who is, like you said, an outsider, who becomes an insider in some ways, or who changes the culture in some way. Gloria Swanson, I, you know, it's a little bit different because she was always from the very, very early age, she was a, a major star known all around the world. But Dixon and Richard were outsiders. You know, they were gay at a time where you really couldn't be gay. They struggled with their sexuality. They married women. They ultimately, at least one of them, did find some peace in their um, identity. But I was attracted to them. And more and more in making that film, Boulevard, I thought it was going to really focus on the musical and with Gloria, but it really ended up becoming more and more about them. And so I'm always looking for stories, either of people that you know or you think you know, um, but that are a window to a sort of a cultural moment, you know, where you can talk about the underground with Divine, you know, or you could talk about the gay rights movement with, with Vito. I'm personally looking for great, great characters. And if it's a movie that I think I, I want to see but hasn't been made yet, that's a good indication that I should try to go about and make it somehow. I really do believe, Jeffrey, that you're doing the Lord's work. As someone who taught young people at San Francisco Art Institute, and I taught a cult film course, and I taught a course called uh, Girls on Film, A History of Drag Performance in Cinema, I was teaching young people. And I will tell you, that it is because they have seen a movie quite often that they know some of this stuff. So our generation, us older queers, we used to have to actually go to the library or or have an older queer kind of hold our hand. You know, there was no internet, right? There were There was no streaming service. But now with young people who are at home and they have Netflix or whatever, and they are trying to find themselves and understand things, they know who Divine is through your movie, I Am Divine. And then they find Pink Flamingos or whatever. Um, they know who Vito is because of your movie. They may know who William Castle is because of your movie. And, you know, I really commend you for doing that work because I've seen the results. You know, these mm -hmm. are this is the way that young people are finding out about these people that mean so much to us. And you and I, I think, feel the same way. We want this culture to continue. We want this culture to be understood. We want these people's memories to live on. You know, 
I love your career. I love what you've done. I love everything that you're interested in. I mean, your movies are all over the place, right? So, I mean, what's the best way to find these movies? To just go and Google it, I guess. Is that right? Go and Google it. They're all over. They're on iTunes. They're on Amazon. They're on Netflix. They're all over the place. But I I love what you said earlier about the teacher that you had that turned you on to these things, sort of guided you. And for me, Vito Russo was that person. I didn't Uh have that person in my life, but I read The Cellular Closet. And that sort of turned me on to so many things. And a lot of movies that I've already seen, but I didn't realize had this gay appeal. And after I came out, I looked at everything in a brand new way. And so the movies that I make, Divine, for example, I started to feel like the people we take for granted, the people we love, that all these people, no one will ever forget who Divine is. That's not true. Believe me, that's not true. So I feel like part of the mission of making these movies, and it is a mission, is to reinvigorate the legacy of these subjects. And maybe someone has never heard of Divine. Like some of your students, maybe they'll watch this film. It will turn them on. It'll sort of unlock that door and they'll become obsessives and divine obsessives and John Waters obsessives. Maybe someone's never heard of Alan Carr, but they're going to want to see Can't Stop the Music after they watch the Alan Carr movie. And the same with Boulevard. You know, you try to make Boulevard in a way that even if you've never seen Sunset Boulevard, you would still be sort of swept away by the story in, in a sense. But I really love hearing that about your students when I meet people and they ask what I do. And I'm maybe I'll mention a movie or two that I have done. And the best feeling in the world is meeting someone that I don't know that has already seen one or two or, or more of these films. And that is, that's the best feeling. And if the young person sees one of these films and gets turned on to exploring more, that's amazing. For me, that was uh, Vito and John Waters, too. When John would write in his books about Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Russ Meyer and all these people and turning us all on to this, these incredibly strange films and these filmmakers, indie filmmakers, and what we all do, we're, we're independent filmmakers and we're independent creators. And nobody's necessarily hiring us to make these movies. You know, we have to sort of go out and figure out a way to do it and know that there's going to be an audience out there for it, hopefully. And the best feeling in the world is sitting in that Castor Theater underneath that giant chandelier that hopefully, yeah. if it's if I'm going to go, I want that chandelier to fall on my head while I'm watching <laughs> <you> know, some, <laughs> the women at the Castor Theater. But that's the best feeling in the world, and you know that feeling too, uh, Peaches. Oh my God. It, it is the best feeling. You and I, I've um, shared Frameline screenings together and I talk about it like there's nothing better. If you get to premiere your movie at Frameline, even if you just get to go and attend a movie at Frameline, there's just the magic in the air. And, you know, Vito Russo is there. You know, some part of Vito Russo is literally there in the wall of the Castro Theater. And yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen Jeffrey's I Am Divine or Vito or, oh God, your Tab Hunter movie is so great. Your William Castle movie was the first movie of yours I saw. And it just, your whole filmography, just if you were a fan of the Midnight Mass podcast, you need to go and um, study the filmography of Jeffrey Schwartz because it is exactly what we do and what we love. Because if you think you know the story, I guarantee you have no idea until you see these movies. Speaking of that, Jeffrey, you know, we know that you've been working on Goddess for some time. And um, I know it's a beast of a movie, but, you know, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask if there are any updates. Goddess is uh, very close to my heart. It's a documentary about the the fall and rise of showgirls, which needs no introduction on this podcast. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, there is a really incredible story about this madman director who was at the top, the peak of his power. He could make any movie he wanted to make. And this is what he decided to do. He wanted to push the envelope. He wanted to make a movie that was going to blow the lid off of Vegas and just show the seamy underbelly of Vegas. And make something that is spectacular and bigger than life and over the top and insane. And the world was just was not ready for this movie. And there's also the story of Elizabeth Berkeley, who was had stars in her eyes and, and put herself 
under the care and trust of this this brilliant filmmaker, Paul Verhoeven, and listened to everything he told her to do. And yeah. this was going to be the thing that was going to launch her into superstardom. And we, maybe we know what happened there. So the documentary is, is going to tell that whole story. And we've interviewed Paul Verhoeven. We've interviewed Joe Esterhaus. We've interviewed so many of the people who are in the film. Rena Riffle, Patrick Bristow, the man who did the makeup and the fingernails, you know, he was in the movie. <laughs> and Peaches and Michael are both in the movie. So, you know, these movies take as long as they take. I've been working on this for several years now. And after this phone call, I'm going to go to that room right back there and go back into the editing. So well, it will be out in the world and it's going to be great. Yeah, wherever that premieres, Jeffrey, I look forward to uh, canceling whatever else I have. And I will. I can't wait to be there to support you and see that movie. And, and I guess it's OK to say, but I've seen little bits of the movie. I was lucky enough to be at Jeffrey's place and get to see a little snippet. And you are not ready for this movie. It is the Showgirls documentary we all want to see. I can't wait. And you're part of the story. Your Midnight Mass is part of the story, and that helped to make Showgirls the cult movie that it is today. And you helped to introduce so many people who walked into that cast or theater, maybe not knowing what they were going to get. And they got more than they expected. That's for sure. <laughs> that's right. Well, Jeffrey, we can't thank you enough. I think I speak for both of us when I'm like, oh my God, there's so much more I can talk to you about. Yes. So maybe, maybe this is the deal. Jeffrey, you have to come back on at some point and, and, and be on another episode. I'd love to. I love what you do, and this is the podcast that I was waiting for. And I watched the movies again after I listened to you people talk about it, because there's things we love, and then there's the ability to talk about the things that we love and why do we love them so much. And I love hearing your point of views, and it always gets me thinking and, and lets me see these, these movies in a new way. Thank you for taking the time. You know, listeners, as we said, whether you enjoy descending a grand staircase or emerging from a volcano, Jeffrey Schwartz is the documentary filmmaker for you. Jeffrey, thank you for coming and sharing your insights and stories and knowledge with us. It's so beyond appreciated. My pleasure. Keep up the good work. Okay, that was our fantastic interview with filmmaker Jeffrey Schwartz, whose movies, as we discussed, are all things you should check out. I mean, as listeners of this podcast, we can tell you right here and right now that this person's filmography is going to be of interest to you. Every film, you know, he's he's just done uh, all the stuff that makes us excited. Well, let's face it, most of his documentaries relate to subjects that we've done on the podcast. William Castle, Divine, Tab Hunter, now Gloria Swanson. I am sure at some point we'll cover Can't Stop the Music, which ties in with Alan Carr. We actually should. And, you know, speaking of Tab Hunter, we need to add Grease 2 to the list because, you know, I love Grease 2. I think I love Grease 2 more than the original Grease, which I realize is a controversial statement. You're just asking for it now. Well. Because I'll tell you, when I was doing Grease 2, uh, I got in trouble for saying such things. But, hey, uh, we digress. Yeah, Jeffrey is just incredible. That conversation was fascinating. Definitely go check out uh, the Boulevard documentary. Just so great knowing that story. And also, as we discussed earlier in the show, knowing that, you know, there is a certain part of the queer community who immediately gets what these things are. They don't just want to see them once. They want to live in these experiences. These guys wanted to celebrate Sunset Boulevard immediately with a musical. And I think the idea that they paired up with Gloria to do this is fascinating. And 
you know, is a whole nother movie. That would be like us in 1997 getting together with Elizabeth Berkeley and trying to write a musical about showgirls. Like, <laughs> when you think about it. <laughs> yes, I, I, I mean, it actually would be like that. Yeah. There's so much about the character of Norma Desmond that speaks to so many delusional drag queens that we had to have one on. You know, oh, <laughs> I'm not saying that she's delusional, but she is larger than life and she is iconic and she is glamorous and she's she can be a bitch. She's intense. She's strong-minded. She is, in many ways, kind of like, you know, Norma Desmond, right? So... But enough say? about yourself, Peaches. Please introduce <laughs> our guests. So that's why I'm on the podcast, and we thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs> oh, my God. Not today, Satan. Not today. Okay. Our listeners already know who we're about to introduce. I love that we tease these things. like As if it's not in the episode blur. Yeah, like yeah. everyone knows when they, when they push the button. They already know who's going to be on the show. They know what movie we're doing. I guess we're just, you know, we just like to put on a little show. But she is a dear, dear friend, and I love her to death. I'm so glad that she was able to come on and do this. And she's here to talk all things Sunset Boulevard. Without further ado, it's the legendary icon, Bianca Del. Rio. It's time for me to introduce our very special guest. I've known this queen for years. I was a fan of hers before I met her. Uh, we've, of course, worked together and collaborated on uh, numerous productions, notably Whatever Happened to Bianca Del Rio and, uh, of course, Sheetle Juice. But you, of course, know her best as the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 6. She's also the star of not one, but two feature films, Hurricane Bianca. Um, but I really admire her most for her ability to go out around the world with just her sweet little Kenny, her manager, Jamie, and put on a show that sells out, you know, arenas, practically stadiums, just this bitch in a microphone. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the riches she's rolling in. It is unbelievable what she's been able to do. I'm endlessly impressed by her. Um, ability to, to to do this over and over again. I love her so much. She's here to talk about this incredible movie. There's way more I could say. The accolades are pretty endless, so go look at her Wikipedia page or whatever. It's <laughs> the one, the only, Bianca Del Rio. What a lovely introduction, and please do that again when I die. Basically, what you said is I work, and I work cheaply, and that's what I do. I don't... Yeah. I don't trust people. I don't trust cues. I don't trust lighting. So whatever it is, I ask for a spotlight, a table, and a glass of wine. There'll be a show. Some kind, I may not remember it. They may not enjoy it. But a show will happen with just those few elements. Because I see everybody. I mean, even you with your productions that you put on with yeah. set, all of these cues and all. 
for me, it's it's amazing when I see it happen, but it's the last fucking thing I want to be in control of. I have such admiration for queens like yourself. The most similar queen I can think of is maybe Coco Peru, you oh, know, yes. who, who does a very similar kind of like just this sort of monologue and like yeah. you can go to a Coco Peru show. Although um, I would say that, you know, Coco does have some little bells and whistles here and there. Yeah. Your show is, is it's just so genius in, in terms of its simplicity. And I, I mean, I say that, you know, as someone who, as you know, I love a big giant shit show. So, you know. <laughs> It's one of those things where imagination and creating all of this could happen, but I prefer to do multiple nights back to back and plow through them, which makes it really, really impossible. I, I just recently saw Jinx and Dela's Christmas show, and I'm like, I mean, amazing. And yeah. I'm, all I think about, what time did you get there to fucking do the cues? What time did you get there to set it up? You get into some of these venues, you don't know what the sound system is, you don't have the same depth of the stage, you've got dancers, you've got to reorganize, reblock. Re I'm like, God bless you both, you know? Yeah. But they've got it down pat, which is amazing. I think that you have it down pat too. And in this discussion and in introduction, Peaches talks about the height of stardom and the height of fame and what you've achieved. And you're here talking about the demands you don't want, to not trust yeah. a cue, to not trust yes. the lighting. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is how that ties into the film we're here to discuss, because yes. this sensational movie that came out in 1950 that we're still talking about is about a woman who knew what she wanted. She knew what she expected from the lighting. She knew what she expected yeah. about from the cues. And rare is this kind of film in our discussions here on Midnight Mass, because Peaches and I frequently talk about cult films that were not successful when they first came out. Yeah. But this was a success the second it hit. And for that reason, many, many people have their own personal history with discovering Sunset Boulevard. And I'm wondering, what's yours? Well, I grew up uh, at a time where old movies were airing on television. I mean, we had limited amount of channels that existed. I mean, when I was really young, it was three channels. And then uh, my teenage years, cable was introduced, which is a heightened few more channels. But I remember um, seeing uh, the movie once. And then when I was 17, I, I met a friend of mine by the name of Kenny Wesson, who's no longer with us, but was the exuberant, I guess my, my uncle Mame, uh, to a certain extent, which was like, you need to see this movie. Baby Jane was one of them. You need to see Auntie Mame, which other you need to see Sunset Boulevard. You know, old school gays. Remember before the internet, uh, before anybody could sit down and say, yeah, just look it up. They basically said, you need to see all these things. And I'm like, oh, I saw Sunset Boulevard. But after Kenny Wesson, uh, reintroduced it to me, I saw it with different eyes. And there were so many aspects about it that were amazing. And then when I started to do research on it, pre-internet, you had to go to the library and you had to find out who Billy Wilder was. You had to find out who Gloria Swanson was. You had to find out who William Holden was. All of those things was just kind of fascinating to see. It almost paralleled her life to a certain extent, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. But just the idea of a woman who was at the time in 1925, the biggest box office draw, Miss Swanson, to Paramount Studios, and then to never make a movie again after that, like literally a silent film star, boom, packed away, done. What an insane thing. And then to get to come back and play this role. And I don't know if you knew this, but originally when they were um, creating this, that Billy Wilder's first choice for the role, do you know who it was? We actually did an interview earlier with Jeffrey Schwartz, the filmmaker yeah. who, who did this documentary. And um, we talked about a few people that- But it really was Mae West, right? Mae West! That's what, yes! yeah, we, but Which, it, it was Mae West. And then there was a few more, right? Like there was yes. a few that he went through before landing a heart. But I guess Mae West was his first choice. 
what a different film that would be. And also just the insanity of the fact that Mae West at that time was another one who was considered a has-been, you know, after 40, you know, because Gloria Swanson filmed when she was 51 at the time. 51. You think if the world stopped at 51 for actresses, Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, none of them would be working. Right. You know, and that Benning, it's fascinating. Viola Davis. It's like wild to think that that would be the cutoff point and that was it. And then she came back with this film and, and in, a, in a year where there was against All About Eve, another amazing film yeah. that you're like, wow, how, how about show business? Um, but it's pretty fascinating how the two were there at the same time. It's almost like the same year of like uh, 1939 where Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, Citizen Kane all comes out. And you're just like, that is amazing time to create these films. And here were these two films that were just so brilliantly done, also so very different. But I just thought having Gloria Swanson involved just made it even more appealing. You know, knowing that she had survived this, experienced this, was a silent star, lost everything, well, not really lose everything, but kind of became a recluse, at least showbiz wise, you know, wasn't doing anything. It's fascinating. Yeah, and that definitely is part of the magic of it is how much it actually is. There is this sort of overlap between, you know, her and knowing like, I'm watching a character, this is a character, but wait a second, like this person experienced this, you know, she was a silent movie star. And um, so the other people, cause I had to check really quick. Oh yeah. Um, you're right. It was Mae West and Marlon Brando were his first choices. And then um, when May passed, he went to Greta Garbo and um, and then Norma Shearer. So there were the there was a series of these iconic, you know, women of the era. But also you're, I love that that um, mention of 1939, because 1939 is that golden era of Hollywood cinema. That's the magical year of all those movies. Yeah. coming out. But you're right. I mean, 1950, especially if you're gay and, you yeah. know, like you're, you're talking about like the year of the diva. That none of them won the yeah. Academy Awards. Yeah. The Academy Awards, where you have Betty Davis for All About Eve, you have Ann Baxter for All About Eve, that shady bitch, that's a whole nother thing. And then, <laughs> then you have uh, Judy Holiday born yesterday. It's just fascinating that she didn't win or Betty Davis didn't win. Yeah. You're like, that is to me mind boggling. If I may interject real quick on this, because you also mentioned when you were talking about your mentor, your uncle, ma'am, yeah. as it were, the films that he told you to go watch. Yes. Baby Jane, Auntie yeah. Mame, Sunset Boulevard. Yes. And we're looking now in a post-drag race lens where drag queens discovered drag queens in many ways by seeing drag queens on TV. But we yeah. didn't have that for a certain era. No. And so- uh, there's a whole generation who look to these women that you're listing. And I'm wondering how much using those women as avatars informed the drag that you've created, or if, if you think that's essential to a certain drag generation. At the time, I don't think I was doing research on any of them, but sure. I was just fascinated. I wanted to live at Beekman Place when I saw Maine. Uh, I wanted uh, I wanted to have that. Wanted to live. Wow. Yes. <laughs> uh, what is it? 33 Beekman, I believe it is. That was just something. But Rosalind Russell was also a favorite of mine because, uh, you know, The Women. The Women is another one of those brilliant films. Also 1939. <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's influential in my look nowadays, I think, because I preferred that old Hollywood look. And then what find, you find what works for you. 
and then you wear it. So basically not much versatility. But in that, I always enjoyed the look of it, but I also just found the stories to be completely entertaining and interesting, you know? And, and you know, Betty Davis, that's just a fraction of what she did. Baby Jane was one thing, like all the other films. Now Voyager, you know, I mean, so many things that she created and made Jezebel, made her own of human bondage. Um, it's just wild to think that that was just the tip of the iceberg. Same thing with Rosalind Russell, same thing with Gloria Swanson, you know? I'm watching this movie about an aging star who at the time, she, she looked great for 51, don't get me wrong. But in the end, you're like, oh, wow, she had this whole other world where she was, excuse the expression, the Beyonce of the world at that point, where she was kind of everywhere. And then to lose all of that, it was just really kind of fascinating to see it and understand it and go, wow, this could happen to anybody. <laughs> it really could. I mean, finding a young man and then killing him, that's kind of exciting too. But <laughs> play with the wrong bitch, you know, that's what happens. I think it's so great to have you specifically on our celebration of Sunset Boulevard because we have done um, an episode on Auntie Mame. We have yes. not yet done Baby Jane. But, you know, there are these movies that, um, for me, I'm going to sort of piggyback on what you were bringing up and sort of mention that there's another also way to kind of look at the sort of, uh, I guess, the legends, quote unquote, of drag, which really just means we were older and we yeah. grew up in a, in, a, in a time before reality TV, we, you know, and you're right. Like we did um, look to movie stars, both in the golden era of Hollywood, but also for me, obviously, people like Elvira, Divine. Yeah. You know, we looked at these larger than life, big screen um, people that to inform us because we didn't have celebrity drag queens, you know. Yeah. Um, so if you talk to me, Coco, Bianca, um, Varla, uh, you know, you, you're going to find that our references are, are movie queens by and large. We sound like Norma Desmond. Yes, back in our day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, we really do. I mean, we, we sit around and, of course, you know, um, even Bianca, who who has like, you know, uh, had so many fruits given to her because of this success on, on, on TV, she still gets that, you know, there is this downside to this sort of popularity or this sort of giant, you know, machine kind of yeah. spitting out drag. Um, so we do in some ways sound like bitter old Norma Desmond, you know, sitting around, you know, um, and I'm fine with that. But what I was going to ask you, Bianca, because I think we, we sort of scratched on it, but I, of course, I've been waiting to talk to you about this because... If you don't know Bianca's other skill set, you know, aside oh. from the stand-up comedy and just being hilarious, there are queens like myself who write and direct and produce shows, but I cannot make a costume to save my life. I cannot <laughs> do a, I cannot put a wig together. Yeah. Bianca is a fucking costume designer, and that's actually what she was doing, you know, professionally. And so I want to talk to you about Edith Head and oh. just and just ask, you know, how much has costuming informed your love of drag? Which came first? And did this stuff inspire Bianca's look? You know, always. Uh, well, I mean, just the idea of the Hollywood glamour machine and having the studio that would do it. What was interesting about Edith Head in every book I read on Edith Head, which is so genius, is that she was an OK designer, <laughs> but <laughs> she knew what she was doing publicly. She was truly somebody who took the opportunity and then created this um, persona, this enigma, this magic. For instance, you know, winning Academy Awards for costumes that were designed by Givenchy for Audrey Hepburn, you know, because he wasn't given proper <laughs> credit. She's the most nominated and most winning uh, eight Academy Awards as a costume designer. So here was this woman who understood the business, also had longevity, 
forever, which was crazy. And there was also, shockingly, a Vanity Fair article about Edith Head that when she died, they'd gone through her house and in a cabinet, there was all these wig heads with all her little bangs on them. So she even had her own look as who she was. But I thought that whether she was the most talented, I don't agree with everything, but I thought she understood the business of it. And part of the business in general is making the star or the person you're costuming feel comfortable and making them look their best. So she was a people person on that level. So that's one of the reasons why she worked so much, you know, till the end of her life. I mean, she worked well into her eighties. So it's fascinating to see her level of work. In this film, it's high drag, you know? I mean, it's, it's high drag, you know, the leopard outfit <laughs> that she wears. Also just all the headgear, the turban, that first look, the turban with the glasses, which is just like this iconic look that we all know. Everybody puts Norma in a turban. And years later, Anthony Powell, another brilliant designer who designed Sunset Boulevard on uh, Broadway, same thing. That was one thing you're like, we've got to give them that to establish that look. So I thought her choices were great, where they're like show-stopping, like, oh, oh, no. But you do remember that first turban, always, and you always remember the leopard outfit. And then you also remember the black and white outfit when she turns to the studio, which yeah. is still the best. I thought she did a brilliant job with the film and also taking someone who was probably not comfortable being back on screen and making her look her best. Because I thought Gloria looked gorgeous. Gorgeous for 51. We're saying this. 51. I'm almost 51. So it's just <laughs> a while to think, oh, poor bitch. But she looked amazing. I thought it was great choices. When we spoke to our other guest, he made the comparison that in many ways, the construction of Sunset Boulevard is like Dracula. The idea that this person comes to this old house yeah. and there's this fabulous otherness that lives yeah. there and then is trying to come back into the world. And when we look at Sunset Boulevard as sort of a precursor to other exploitation, a term I don't love, but people know what we're talking about. Movies that come that we've mentioned, even Baby Jane, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. The costuming goes a long way into creating the otherness. But mm -hmm. I think specifically here, we are supposed to look at her as other and fabulous versus Baby Jane, who is other and tragic. Correct. She was a star. She was even aware of what looked good on her. She knew the presentation, whereas Baby Jane, she's living in the past. All she knew was fucking, I'm this young child, daddy took care of me, you know, th this is it. So that she never lost. It's like being a child star that never got through it, where I think Norma was just kind of engulfed in the world where she still thought she was that star. I mean, much to Max, who was the one who was creating all the madness. Max is the Mrs. Lovett of Sweeney Todd. He's the nastiest thing because he knows all these elements and he knows what's actually happening but he's not giving all the proper information which in the end i think he's the demon in the movie you start to realize he holds all the keys he knows what's going on well and that was going to lead into my question is the idea that while she understands her otherness as represented through outfit and we as queer folks do as well, the fabulousness, yeah. the understanding, the star power. There is a construction that because she looks different from everyone else, if you take that Dracula yeah. analogy, it also presents her as the villain in a way. And we get this read of a villain from more of a mainstream lens. And I wanted your take on that, but you sort of spoke to it, that maybe Max is more the villain. He, yeah. William Holden's more the villain. She's just a victim of circumstance. She is living the life that she only knows. I mean, if you're continuously writing the letters and, you know, she's just assuming someone's not calling. She's assuming that if she can just stop and make a call and DeMille's going to answer, that's because of the bubble she's living in, you know? And I blame Max for that. <laughs> I mean, I think, 
I think Max is a problem, where in her mind, she's just thinking, oh, they're held up with something. Something is going to happen soon, which is why she's writing this 9,000-page Salome. And in her mind, thinking, I can still play a 15-year-old. I mean, that's still the best thing. She's going to play a 15-year-old Salome. (laughs) I mean, that's a level of delusion. You know, I've been there because I've done musicals. But in my brain, I go, yeah, she's thinking, yeah, uh, well, this is what what I'm going to do, right? because the only people around her are telling her, yeah. And I think somehow when Joe comes in, obviously a player to begin with, whether he started out as a player or not, $300, I need to get my car fixed, then the whole love situation, is that I think he became a player and he didn't help her either. You know, if anything, more blossomed. They cleaned up the pool. All of a sudden they're going out on town and this is happening and we're gonna drive into the studio now, where I think she got that extra nudge and that extra confidence what she would not have gotten without Joe being there. So I think Joe and Max really fucked up an already a psychologically incoherent individual. You know what I mean? I don't think she's crazy. I think that's what she fed. You know, if she's walking around the house and, and the one person that's living there is going, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, here's all your fan mail. I mean, I would believe it. I don't get fan mail, but you know what I mean? That would be in my mindset. Yeah, it's a little more than enabling. Yes! It's like a step further, for, you yes. know. Yeah. Or as they say politically now, false truths. That's what it is. It's <laughs> false truths that's happening. You mentioned the word musical, and I know that you've been in musicals, as you said. Yeah. And I know that you're a fan of the Sunset Boulevard musical, a big fan. Yeah. And so I just wondered if you um, could tell us about that and and sort of like maybe share any stories because I believe you've even like gotten to like you know hang out with Glenn Close and oh, I mean you don't say no she she calls and begs and pleads no I have a, a very <laughs> a very good friend of mine from many years ago named Rick Carrado who was a hairdresser who um, had done Glenn's hair on a couple of films and I mean you know look once again here we are gays praising our women. Glenn Close, I'm sorry, ultimate, my favorite, the best, everything, Dangerous Liaisons, World According to Garp, The Big Chill, give me any movie. I'm Fatal Attraction. Fatal fucking, and wait, are you ready for this? Oh, we have to have a podcast about this. The fact (laughs) that she lost to Cher for Moonstruck. You know what that is. The Academy Awards is famous for neglecting someone like Cher for the movie Mass. Yes. And then realizing in hindsight, you know, that the time passes, they go, wow, we really fucked that up. Like yes. Cher, Cher should have won for Mass. Nobody plays crazy like fucking Glenn Close. I no, mean, I mean, it's true. I snuck into a movie theater when I was a kid and I saw Fatal Attraction and it was, I mean, a Uh revelation. It was the scariest movie ever. She was just chilling. In fact, Bianca, when we have you back on, we sometimes do these episodes on the podcast called Idol Worship, where we just take one person or thing that we're all obsessed with. Oh, God, yeah. We need to do Idol Worship, Glenn Close. Got it. You come back on, we'll just obsess over her. That one performance launched a whole subgenre of movies for a following decade. Basic Instinct and Decent Proposal. Yeah, Yeah, and what what was also just so interesting is that when the musical uh, first came about, I knew about it with Patti LuPone, another one I love, another one I love, and I've been able to work with- You hang out with her too. We We make costumes for her. She's lovely if you are that gay who just loves a diva. She is everything that you would want her to be, and honey, I don't expect anything else. I just sit back and go, 
Let me take notes. Uh, she's lovely. <laughs> with Glenn, it was crazy because I knew the show was in London. It was going to open on Broadway with Patty. But then they decided to do, as the whole Hollywood theme, they decided to do it in Los Angeles. And they were going to have this other production that was happening. And Glenn Close went in. Well, Glenn Close got amazing reviews in Los Angeles. And so that's when Angela Weber fired Patty in New York. And then if you read Patty's book, you get all the dirt. If you listen to the audio, it's even better because you can hear the bitterness. But in the best <laughs> of it is that now Glenn is going to New York to do the show. And I remember because I was in high school, I went to New York to go see the show. And it was one of the first few shows that year. Um, I would say it was, uh, was it 93, maybe 93, 94. I had seen uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman the year prior. Cheetah, we have to go to Idol Worship with her. Um, yeah. Just saw her the other day. Almost 90. Amazing. Anyway, um, I sound like such a fag. Oh, hanging out with Patty. Oh, hanging out with Glenn. Hanging out with Cheetah. <laughs> well, well, stick with your group. So yeah. I'm with the old girls. But uh, what was so crazy is that she was wearing, you know, head mics. And at the time, there were these huge, like a, a big mole that was sitting on their forehead. It was when they first started putting them in wigs and stuff. And I remember her entrance. And it's this whole, you know, car chase scene. This was the original John Napier set, which was just this big, fabulous gloriousness. The house came down. On many performances, it got stuck. But anyway, it was this whole <laughs> thing where the whole house came down after the thing. And... He comes through and she's like, you there, why are you so late? And in that moment, she enters down the staircase of death and the audience is screaming, you know, as faggots do, me being one of them. And by <laughs> mid stairs, when, when the applause dies down, all I could hear was her jewelry coming down the steps. And that's <laughs> what the sound was. Because you could hear her breathing and you just heard this necklace that was just pounding and pounding and pounding. And I just remember thinking, oh, I'm about to witness something. Because to be in a theater with, you know, 1,500 people at that theater, uh, the Minsko Theater, I think it was, and everybody just silent to watch what we know is going to happen. We know the story. And this is 10 minutes in and she's finally making her entrance. It was one of those star performances that I had not seen by anybody else other than Cheetah Rivera and Kiss of the Spider Woman, where you're watching a show and you literally feel like they're doing the whole show for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And the drag, the drag and that. Now, Mr. Anthony Powell took it up a notch because uh, Anthony Powell also designed for Glenn all of the Dalmatian movies. So he's the same designer and he um, also designed Hook, Steven Spielberg's Hook. So he stepped it up a notch and the costumes were unreal. And some of those costume changes were in and out. I mean, he had a turban, but you had 12 and they were beaded and gorgeous to match the dress with fur cuffs. So um, I loved the musical and I, I saw it then in the 90s and then I saw it they did a revival concert version not too long ago, maybe about five, six years ago in London, I saw it. And then it came to New York again and did a concert version here, which I then got to see as well. It's one of those things, I just love the story. I just love the idea. And as an older star of a certain year, I realize how this can happen. <laughs> I realize. <laughs> well, speaking of stage productions, usually when we have someone who's done stage shows with Peaches, and oh, if God. they have not done the movie that we're talking about, yeah. I like to ask if we were doing this with Peaches, who would you want to play? But I feel the answer is obvious. So instead, <laughs> Bianca, who would you cast Peaches as in Sunset Boulevard? Oh, God. Just for my own shits and giggles, she's got to be Max. But I, <laughs> if she can get me the staircase, I'll let her just be one of the waxworks. I'll just let her come and play cards at one scene. Well, she couldn't be the ingenue because you're not. Well, you would be funny as the ingenue. You would be funny as the sweet girl who's uh, well, the actress is Nancy Nancy Olsen. I, I think, think it's her name. Right. Yeah. She's still alive. Is she? Oh, really? Yeah, she's like 94 years old. 
Do you know that she was nominated for an Academy Award for the role? Debbie Schaefer. Well, I think she was 21 at the time, and I'm, she's still alive, 94 or something like that. God, that's amazing. Yeah, I would say I would have to put you as Betty Schaefer. That would be good. You like to cry on stage. And then we'll put Hecklina as Max. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hecklina would make a great Max, honestly. Yeah. He would. <laughs> well, you know, I've been telling Peaches for years, which, which is not part of this movie, but I'm saying one of the shows she needs to do is she needs to do The Birdcage, where she has Jinx as, you know, Zaza, and I get to be her annoying husband, and then Peaches can play the Diane Weiss role, uh, and then we have Heclina as the Republican father. There you go. <laughs> I love that idea. I love it. And then yes. on matinees, me and Jinx switch roles. Uh <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So, Bianca, um, before, you know, we wrap up here, we know you love Sunset Boulevard. We know we're going to have you back on for... Glenn Close, Idol Worship, yes. you know, because yes. I think we all agree we can talk all about that. But um, I know our listeners are huge fans of yours. And I know personally that you just wrapped up um, a big tour and you always have a lot going on. I believe there was an exciting announcement made about uh, the pit stop recently. Oh. We're at the beginning of a new year. What what do you have in store for 2023? I always enjoy this. And I know this happens to you. It's like sometimes when you're standing there on an opening night or you've sat there in you know, the Castro Theater, and you've just put on this whole production, two shows in one day, and you're in full drag and you're exhausted and someone goes, so what's next? And you're like, can I get <laughs> fucking through tonight? Yes. <laughs> um, so what I did, which I have not done in many, many years, because uh, I don't know if you realize this, but it's been nine years since Drag Race for me. Wow. So during the pandemic, I was like, let's get out of the house and go to work. So I did finish a very long 13-month tour. And then with it, I thought, let me take a minute to just digest and figure out what I want to do. So I had to have foot surgery and all kinds of stuff like that, real life issues. But this is the year of getting to do all those things I don't get to do, uh, which is I, I filmed a television show, which you can't talk about it right at the moment. There's another one that's in the works. And then I also had the opportunity to get to do Pit Stop. They've been asking me for the past couple of years, would I be interested in doing it? And I, I'm not going to lie. I have not been the biggest Drag Race fan. Uh, so I haven't <laughs> watched every season. So I think that's what's going to make it fun to get to do it. So basically, I watch the season and then I give my input and opinions. And I think sometimes if someone is a major fan of something, they lose their minds and become a little too attached to it. Yeah. So I was excited <laughs> to, get, to get to say whatever the fuck I want, because I'm not a super fan. Right. I was corrected recently. It's not Pit Stop. It's The Pit Stop. Very serious. The Pit Stop, which will now air um, every Saturday following Drag Race. So Drag Race starts January 6th, and then the next day, it's available on the RuPaul's Drag Race station. Uh, you'll get to see on YouTube me giving my critiques with other esteemed guests, which basically means anybody who was in L.A. and was available. We give our input of the season. So I've got that going on, and I've got a lot of one-offs going on, a lot of random events that I could do here and there, some gay prides and some events and fundraisers that I just haven't had the time to do. So um, it's been nice to, you know, I feel like Gloria Swanson. I'm getting back into the business. Uh, <laughs> but I do get nervous because I have a pool and I don't want to kill anyone. You know, having a moment to like breathe a bit and not have that packed schedule, which is nice, you know. As someone who knows you, it's like your idea of slowing down is, is still insanely, you know, kind of busy. So um, there's always something to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, and the advantage is, um, you know, with all of this, it's been an amazing nine or so years, but it's just good to go, OK, I can take a minute and then really think about what I want to do and get to do those fun projects. And not saying that touring is not fun, but it's just 
you're just locked in, so you can't do shit. So now I'm free to get to do a lot more other stuff, which has been lovely. My guess is that Norma Desmond was like um, a a very organized person. I don't know. But like Bianca Del Rio, I have never met a drag queen as neat or organized or put together. Like when you travel with her, you, you can't believe the amounts of little Tupperware bins labels. She has label makers, you know, so like she'll... Like we're looking at her right now in her beautiful oh. sewing studio. You should see how it looks. It's so, yeah, it's just incredible. Like I just, I mean, I just love it. It's Max who writes <laughs> the letters. It's Max who puts it together. You that's first, right. the thing is, this is the trick. You have to get a foreigner and you have to train them. And that's what Gloria did. That's the trick. <laughs> Lied to her, told her she was the greatest star there is. I have this conversation with Jamie, my assistant, every day of my life. Like, don't you know who I think I am? No, uh, it's just, this is just, this is just the way that works for me, you know? And and right. you figure it out when you're on the road, it ain't, it ain't easy. So you gotta have everything you need. It's very hard to find my size eyelashes somewhere. So I have to carry extra. The other side of that, that's not very Norma Desmond, Bianca, and, and she, you know, I've told people this and I love telling people this. She does come off like just such a bitch. And, you know, she will she will, she will totally rip into me on stage, call me fat, whatever. That's all the fun of drag. And like, yeah. I love it. But backstage, like Bianca is the one who's just going around, making sure people have what they need, you know, fixing their shitty wigs. It's amazing. I'm always shocked when you and Bunny are on stage together because I know that you've been backstage with her and she still comes out looking like that. You know, yeah, well, she's a hard one to hold down. Uh, she, <laughs> literally yesterday, she called me uh, for 20 minutes to run all these jokes by me. So uh, I call it a drive by bunny. She's not talking to me. She's talking at me. And she <laughs> just went on a tangent. And then the phone just cut out. And someone that was here that was like, did she hang up? I go, no, no, this is just she's through talking. She's through with her jokes. Yeah, I think she, she hangs up. That's highly possible. Yes. I could have worn a turban for this whole scene. I could have. Do you take a screenshot of us? We should. Let's do it now. Let me get my turban and get my glasses. Hold on. All right, great. I can do my my Mac scene. Okay, perfect. So quick. Mm -hmm. Okay. One, two. Okay, that worked. Okay, good. You look like Pepper LaBeja with that. (laughs) Uh, that is going to be cultural appropriation. <laughs> Don't yeah. cancel me on your podcast, bitch. You'd be like, this is uh, Bianca dressed as Iman in that Michael Jackson video. <laughs> you remember the time. Time, yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Did you know that the opening scene, you know about the whole opening scene, how it was shot and it was different? It was, oh. they used mirrors at the bottom of the pool. No, right? but did you know that that whole first scene was shot after the fact, the whole pool sequence? Do you know about the original scene? No. The, well, just a little tidbit. So the original scene, um, it started out with people in a morgue. It was just a bunch of the bodies. And the first scene is they were putting the identification tag on the toe of Joe Gillis. And so basically in the room were all these different bodies that were talking to one another and discussing how did you die? Oh, this happened, that happened, this happened. The, the opening scene is on his toe and wheeling him in. And then he gives his story. What happened to you? I drowned. And they said, oh, a strapping man like you. He goes, well, I was shot in the chest in this. And that's how it kind of unfolded. And they had done a couple of tests um, out of town and it didn't go well. People were laughing. So then they reshot oh. after the fact 
that scene with the pool, which the pool, the house was real, but the pool was not real. Did you know that? No. The pool was just a hole with water, basically. And that's when they put the mirrors underneath it to film it. So it wasn't a functioning pool. Ah. And they had, it didn't do much for the home itself. And then the home was demolished and some big office building is where it is now. Oh, that's tragic. But Modern also, Los Angeles. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? But yeah, so yes. they had a whole different introduction. So... Yeah, kind of wild to think it would just be narrated by his foot in a room with other dead bodies. But then they did that one, which was pretty great. But the pool and is so iconic. I'm glad we have it. Of course it is. Yeah. The pool and the music. I mean, that's yes. the other thing. Like that. It won best score. Music. Yeah. It won best score, which was pretty amazing. I thought it was creepy and great. And uh, no, there's just so many things about it that I love. If you look at the details of the film, too, and you look at all those photos and you're like, that is really Gloria Swanson in those photos. Yeah, right. Did you ever see that picture of Meryl Streep? that's sitting on a couch and all the photos behind her are just like that. Oh. But she's laying there and behind her on this sofa table is like endless photos of her throughout her career. It's pretty amazing. Well, and speaking to Bianca's point, the fact that we look at Norma Desmond and in the narrative of the movie at 51, she's supposed to be washed up. Remember, and death becomes her. Meryl's about 41 in that role and she's supposed to be done and over the hill. So the parallels mm -hmm. and death becomes her is, is really constructed like Sunset Boulevard as well in terms of the parallels that they have with old Hollywood. Yeah. So I think that um, the, the ongoing damage here is just that we're telling women they're too old. Well, I also had read that Zemeckis was definitely referencing Sunset Boulevard in Death Becomes Her. I mean, yes, sure. it's monster movies, but it's also completely gothic, which is yeah. Hollywood gothic is just, I mean, Baby Jane and Sunset Boulevard are so, so two of the greatest examples of just Hollywood goth culture. And I mean that by like the style of the buildings and there is something sort of really creepy and wonderful about Los Angeles that a lot of people who aren't, haven't really spent much time there don't know. It's like, there's yeah. a lot of crazy old scary houses and places. I would argue that Sunset Boulevard is a monster movie, but unlike the comparison of Dracula, the city's Dracula, it's not yeah. her. Yeah. It's the oh yeah, industry. it's not her. It's town. Yeah. And did you know another tidbit? <laughs> no, you're like, we need to wrap this up, faggot. Um, <laughs> another tidbit that was kind of fascinating is that uh, Montgomery Cliff was up to play. Um, you know that story about him and then him backing out two weeks before, which is just kind of fascinating because he had that own, you know, that scandal, which is so fascinating to me that he's like, mm, I can't go play my real life. But it's <laughs> interesting that that was basically a thing that could happen. You know, yeah. you yeah. could get wrapped up in this, get what you need out of it. And to be fair, Norma was getting what she needed out of it. She was getting admiration. She believed that she was still the star. That's what gave her the confidence to go back to Paramount Studios. You yeah. know, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for being our guest because obviously I think we all can agree um, you were just absolutely the perfect guest. And in fact, Bianca, I'm not sure if you've seen um, Jeffrey Schwartz's documentary. And I know for a fact that you're going to be totally fascinated by this film because it's right up your alley and it's you know with all this information that you're giving us this is about Gloria Swanson's attempt with um a gay oh, the musical. couple yeah yes exactly yes. the gays the gays were with it till the end yes <laughs> I hope I get to see you in person soon and yes we, we loved having you yes I'm up for idol worship Although she hasn't done many films, Cheetah Rivera is another one who turns 90 next year. She's writing a book, so that's going to be good. Uh, but definitely uh, Glenn Close. I mean, she had an Academy Award nomination every other year in the 80s. Can you believe I mean, that? Yeah, she's just beyond. Deserved. And she totally deserves 
I mean, totally. Yeah. Marissa Tomei has one. Oh, Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> has one. That's a whole podcast. Cunts that don't deserve an Oscar. <laughs> I could give you okay. a list. That's a special episode. Cunts that don't deserve it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Come on. Thank, Thank you, Bianca. And that was our interview with the legendary Bianca Del Rio. I obviously love Bianca's deep devotion to this film, but the factoids that she brought about the costuming and how that informs the movie is the kind of insight that I want from someone like Bianca because clearly she has thought about this. She studied it. She's a costumer herself. And when we dig into cult films and the different avenues, I even think about when we talked about the Apple and the, the architecture of the Apple, sometimes fans point us towards something that you just sort of take for granted when you watch a movie. And then when the right person points it out to you, you realize, oh yeah, without that, the movie would be a little less or a lot different. And Bianca's pointing out of the work of Edith Head in this film really contextualizes a lot of how we look at Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, she also threw a little shade Edith Head's way, if you noticed. In a way, it was perfect because Bianca doesn't, you know, she doesn't mince words and she's going to tell you exactly how she feels. Obviously, she thinks Edith Head is brilliant, but she did say, you know, that Edith Head, in a way, you know, was was really good at taking other designs and, and using them to her own benefit. And I think I really see the um, connection is through the Broadway show as far as the costumes. You, you heard how excited she got. And if you look at Bianca's own costume design, it is so theatrical and so perfect and beautiful and when she goes on tour, Bianca will decide, like, this tour's look is going to be a yellow and black gown, like she just did for her last tour. Before that, it was a it was sort of a clown jester, it's jester joke tour where it was a clown. She doesn't design just, like, one look. It's, like, seven or eight looks, and she'll have multiples of those, like a Broadway show. So she's got the clown look for the meet and greet. She's got the clown gown for the first act and then for the second act and the one for the publicity photos. And she is over the top and insane and, and just wonderfully decadent. And Bianca's a star. She's a real star. Well, what you're describing goes back to what we talked with her at the beginning of the conversation, knowing your cues, knowing your power, knowing your fame, and knowing your character. Norma Desmond knew her character. Bianca Del Rio knows her character. And I love that whether she knows it or not, the influence is there. And that's what I really think is cool about a movie like Sunset Boulevard. And much like Poseidon Adventure that we did at the end of the year, these are movies that were largely successful upon release as opposed to some other cult films, but how they have made their way out into the world and affected people varies. And we can see from each of them the, the DNA of, of their influence over things that are more cult or more subversive and how from their path, like all these other things grew. Even just looking at our guests from a documentary filmmaker exploring the hidden history of a musical to a drag legend who is a little bit Norma Desmond herself. 
The thing with Bianca, though, of course, is that she still works a lot. You know, I guarantee you if Bianca were sitting around in that giant house she has in Palm Springs with the big pool in the backyard and, you know, the phone call stopped coming and the tour life dried up. I mean, let's face it. We are talking fucking Norma Desmond, uh, you know, the Norma Desmond of it's not Palm Springs, but, you know, it's near Palm Springs. You know, I will actually, in Bianca's defense, say there are a lot of Norma Desmonds in Palm Springs. Touche, <laughs> <laughs> touche. And, and most of them are old, older gay men. <laughs> it's true. I'm not worried about Bianca at all in this case. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not anytime soon. Well, that was just a fun episode. I'm glad that we're back. It's 2023. And as uh, Michael knows, I can tell you with uh, great assurance that some of the episodes we've been working on and that we have coming up are just fantastic. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy them. And Michael and I have scheduled a new Zoom party. So if you want to join us in a conversation in person and and jump on, a, I know everyone loves Zoom meetings, but we actually <laughs> get together with, with Patreon subscribers and we, we have a little party and we discuss movies and share nerdy knowledge. So if you want to support the podcast and, and come to one of our Zoom parties or check out our content on the Patreon, you can find that on our Patreon. So if you too are someone who is basically sitting around the house reminiscing about the days when, you know, things were a lot better than they are today. Then you're ready for your close-up. <laughs> yeah, if you're ready for your close-up, then you too may be one of the children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.